Hi everyone, welcome to Not Insecure. We're glad you're here. If you're interested in hearing about security industry trends, what companies should be doing for security, technical security questions, and more, then you're in the right place. All from the view of a product manager and a senior dev lead. Our goal is to build an authentic, transparent discussion about the challenges that we face building security software today. Stay tuned. In this episode, we'll talk about pushing left. Um, Matt, if you want to hit on these people. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, we're going to spend a couple minutes talking about pushing left, but we didn't invent pushing left. And there have been a lot, a lot of people working on what pushing left means for a long time. And so I just wanted to briefly acknowledge a bunch of those people because, you know, we're just trying to, you know, practice the art. We're not necessarily pretending that we invented it, right? So, um, you know, it was probably, I don't know when, but it, it was a long time ago that, um, I was working with Josh Corman and James Wicket on Rugged, and then that became Rugged DevOps. And then um, Mark Miller, Shannon Lights, and Matt Tesaro all had a lot to do with DevSecOps within OWASP. There were various different movements um, of folks that got involved there. And right now, I think maybe the reigning queen of pushing left is Tanya Yanka, who's um, uh, she hacks purple, and she's been promoting a lot of great um, content and so forth. And so again, we're not necessarily competing with these folks. We wanted to kind of just acknowledge them and the good stuff that they're doing. And there's lots of other people too, but we wanted to have a conversation about what does pushing left mean? And it didn't make sense to do that without acknowledging them at the start. And I'm sorry if we missed obvious people as well. That's not, it's not, it's more intended to be deferential than to catalog everybody who's contributed. So Yep, for sure. So um, going off what you just said, what does pushing left even mean? I think Matt's pointing at you, Keely. You're pointing at me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know a general idea is like you're pushing left, so you have like a software development lifecycle. And for security, pushing left means you're starting security at the very beginning of that lifecycle. Nailed it. Absolutely. Um, so security wise pushing left that's what i know because that's the world i live in but pushing left in general for developers like you joe what does that mean uh, precisely what you said i mean put your put your sdlc or whatever your process is on a on a timeline and traditionally security is done as an afterthought or it's something that comes in qa or it's something that's not done at all until a vulnerability is discovered in production so uh, it's pushing left zoom. just a security <laughs> Yeah, not to Zoom, who, uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of majorly uh, got, got owned this week. Um, so is pushing left just a security term? Is that what I'm hearing? I, in the context, we're talking about it here, but I mean, you could apply it to, you could apply it to any other thing, you know, a lot of other things as well. I mean, again, just as I said Traditionally, you know, traditional software development has like testing happening in QA at the end of the development, but you can push that left too. And that's part of what Agile does is it, it says that we're, we're going to test before we consider something to be done. And it's not just like we build a giant release and it goes to a, you know, a QA group uh, for testing. Um, so, I mean, you could apply the term, I think, to any type of activity 
I mean, wouldn't even have to be necessarily specific to the SDLC, but we, we're talking about software here. So we're talking about those, those activities that are traditionally done at the end that we can do earlier and integrate better into our processes. There was a famous academic paper about software engineering, which we'll put in the show notes, that talked about how, what the cost of, related to a bug in software is depending on whether you find it within days, weeks, months of when it was written. And it intuitively makes sense when you stop and think about it, that if you, if you realize you have a bug within a day of when you first wrote the code, you can usually fix it fairly easily because you still have someone on your team who's familiar with that code. You still know why that code was written that way. That code is still relevant to whatever you're exactly doing and your QA team has just recently tested that code. All of that context is still very current. Whereas if you go three months later, so much of the context of that bug may be different. You know, the developer may be different. The development team might be different. The company might be different. I mean, you might have outsourced the initial development and then have, you know, insourced the maintenance or something like that or outsourced the maintenance to a different company. There's all kinds of reasons why time in the middle makes it take longer. But, but fundamentally, even if it were the same team, there's all this time and space between when you last touched that code. So you don't remember how it operates as well. And you don't necessarily know what the consequences of changing it are. And so both changing it and testing that the change is stable usually costs more. Also, in the older days, it sounds funny to say that, but I mean, I've worked on software that got shipped on a CD, right? Like that's, that doesn't really exist anymore. Um, but think about the cost of fixing then, right? You had to burn a whole new stack of CDs to distribute your, your software package. And you could only do it every quarter or six months or a year. So um, to me, pushing left is kind of like security, getting that concept from Agile and this, this concept of, of fixing bugs as close to when you identify them as possible. Um, and taking that to a natural sort of best possible state. So when it comes to security and we're telling customers to push left with security, what are some of those um, non-technical uh, security requirements for pushing left? Well, so let's let's talk about let's talk about one more thing before we jump in here. So, pushing left is also sort of synonymous with DevSecOps, where that stands for development, security, and operations. Let's step back a step from there. DevOps. DevOps really revolutionized the way some companies build software because it adapted. It is essentially an adapted process that brings developers and operational folks really, really close together. In my head, DevOps doesn't just mean scripting for the cloud. It doesn't mean provisioning things automatically with code, although it does include that. It also means the person who pushes the code owns the operational stability of the system. They're sort of side-by-side -side developing and producing software. And, and even more than that, there's sort of a cultural shared ownership of what's, what's been produced, right? And security sees what's happening with DevOps and has wanted to get into that. And um, 
what we're about to talk about is how security gets into that. But the context is a more holistic thing that includes both sort of operational process, technical um, aspects of, of, of building a system. So when we talk about non-technical pieces, like a really easy, obvious example is defining requirements. So did we define the security requirements before the code was written is a really easy question to ask yourself. A lot of times, you know, security requirements emerge as we write some code and there's code review and now we're further down the path, right? We've invested a bunch of money in building a system that works this way only to find out that using public S3 buckets wasn't a good idea or something like that, right? We didn't necessarily think about the security up front. Um, there are a lot of other non-technical aspects like, like things like checklists and having policies and having data classification, like knowing what data is sensitive. All of those kinds of things are really sort of part of pushing left, education. Those are all part of pushing left because it brings a better security consciousness to the moment where you're writing the code. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. What are, um, you listed a few in there, but what are some of those? So you said you make a list of uh, security priorities or um, some things with security you want to watch for when you're developing. What are some of those things? Like the checklists? Uh, yeah, like within the checklist. Well, maybe a good example. I mean, I always tell people when we do training that there's like four things that should be a checklist on every single user story that's ever been written. And those four things include, you know, are we introducing any potential injection opportunities like queries that get formed? That starts to get to where it's going to be on, it's going to get interpreted once the code's written and confirmed if the checklist is written that way. But that's the first one. The second one is, are we using a framework that by default prevents cross-site scripting? And did we go around that framework in any of the code that was delivered as part of this story? The third item is, did we implement authorization around this feature properly so that we know that Keely can see her profile, but Joe can't? And the fourth is, did we, did we store the data in a safe way? If it's, if it's sensitive data, did we encrypt it at rest and, and over the wire with at least AES-256 or something like that? And so if you write those four items to check, it can become part of, part of the fabric of how you accept user stories. And so even though it's not before the code, not all of those can be completed before the code is written, they're, they're, for the story to be complete, it's clear that they are, they are supposed to be done. And one good thing I find too about putting some of that in and just kind of having a, a procedure that says, hey, this is, this is part of the acceptance criteria for every story is that it leads the developers to get into a mindset of start asking the, the hidden requirements around security, right? Uh, I mean, I'll take us back to the old days a little bit here too. I mean, you know, where we were doing more traditional waterfall development methodologies and you had a giant requirements document, you know, that, that started every project. I don't remember ever seeing one of those that had anything more than the most rudimentary security requirements built in. Everyone just assumes the system's secure. Uh, but nobody really bothers, would bother to define what 
what that means. And so by having these things there, they're, they're in the mind of the people who, you know, as you start thinking about how am I going to implement this feature? When you start thinking about that, having that, having that make sure authorization is correct item there as acceptance criteria can prompt you to go back with questions to the, to yourself or to the product owner even and say, Hey, well, you know, how should this really work in terms of access control? Um, so it can, it can, I think, lead to not just ensuring that authorization is there, but conversations around the best way to handle it and make sure that it's uh, cohesive in, in the whole system as you, as you add additional features. Another thing I like to do um, when we build AppSec programs, I like to incorporate a, a concept of baseline security requirements. And the idea behind that is with most systems, there are, there's an idea of non-functional requirements. So I may have a story that says Matt needs to be able to update his profile, which includes my you know, date of birth, picture, favorite color, whatever it is, right? Well, a non-functional requirement would be you know, 10, 10 million people need to be able to update their profile at the same time or do a lot of different things in the system at the same time. And so the non-functional requirements capture things that aren't explicitly related to a functional feature, but they're sort of expected behavior of the system. And things that I like to put in the non-functional requirements or the, or the baseline security requirements are things like, we expect you to audit, log certain types of activities in the system. Logins, failed logins, um, changes to certain types of data. When Matt changes anything in his profile, that should get recorded somewhere so we can see the history of that. Or we expect you to integrate with this identity provider, or we expect you to have authorization come from groups that are in this identity provider, or there are, there are a million things you can put in this kind of baseline requirements document. But what that does is ensure that your dev team knows up front what the, the expectations are, but also is sort of tuned into all the common things that we're doing for security. So I may be setting up, you know, we, we work on systems where we set up signal, we call it security signal, and the, the apps get instrumented to be able to capture security events and report them somewhere. Well, if I set up one place to do that, and I have 10 dev teams and they don't all know that, they're not gonna report those issues to the same place, which sort of defeats the purpose of having it. So, so there are about a variety of reasons why having those established up front is really important. And that's another example of pushing left. I mean, that's as left as you can get. You're about to start the project. I usually advocate for doing training and baseline requirements before you, like as you're kicking off a project. It's part of inception. Does that make sense? It's a lot there, sorry. Uh, no, that makes sense to me. Um, so you have like the inception, which is before the coding. So once you start coding, is there stuff you do in between there? So I don't know, do you do, a lot of people do code reviews and pen testing. It's kind of known to do those after everything's built out. Are those some things that should be done throughout the SDLC? Well, so in the case of some of that, like you mentioned code reviews, I mean, code reviews should be done for every, every PR. So, I mean, um, usually at the story level. So the, the way it works is, I mean, ideally you want your, your work broken down. So a developer picks up a story, implements the story and, um, opens a, a pull request. 
if you're using Git or whatever, whatever the mechanism is, it varies if you're using different source control systems. And then we go for code review then. And so, you know, another developer picks that up, reviews the code, looks at it, tests it, um, compares it against the acceptance criteria. And so then you, you get that kind of check there even before you would go to, you know, like you, you mentioned, a, you know, um, penetration test, which would definitely be later uh, and not something you're probably going to be doing continually. Uh, but yeah, definitely it's, it's, it's about the shared responsibility. Matt mentioned this. I really like that he touched on this one when it comes to DevOps and DevSecOps, because to me, like part of one of the, one of the best things that I feel like not just those, uh, those trends, but the trend towards agile has really increased um, <clears throat> feeling of ownership and shared ownership in responsibility for the application. I mean, I, um, and that's that I think is part of this as well as it's, it's everybody kind of seeing that everyone's responsible for this. And so code review is a part of that. And I think that, that that's one of the, that's one of the biggest wins for some of this is that everyone understands that, Hey, it's not those guys over there. It's us. We're all, we're all responsible. Cool. Thanks for answering my question there. Um, so with that being said, does, Pushing left, does it only apply to developers? Or does it include some of the security folks in IT? It definitely includes security folks in IT. Um, that's kind of implied in the sort of DevSecOps name. But, <clears throat> but it's confusing to figure out how, and every organization does a different job. So. I always like to poke people a little bit and say like, do you have a dev DevOps team? <laughs> because you're not really supposed to have, in my opinion, a DevOps team that suggests that you're not integrating the DevOps activities across all of your team, right? Like the way DevOps is supposed to work is we have a, we have a team and our dev team shares responsibility for the ops piece and it's all automated in a way that we can all understand and handle. Right. And we all share that responsibility, not, oh, there's the guy over there that, or the gal over there that does that. You know what I mean? Or the team over there that does that. Yeah. That's having, what, a, having a DevOps team kind of just makes it sound like, hey, we've got IT, but they've learned how to script things. Right. <laughs> now, that's controversial. And there are reasons why that sometimes works. Right. So sometimes like there are a lot of skills related to, let's just say, AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, like just managing environments in the cloud are, is complicated. And so there's a reason why there are teams that emerge that help do that at companies. But I do think that that gets away from the, the fundamental idea of DevOps and the, and the cultural idea of DevOps, right? Because once you have different teams, now they're antagonistic again. You right. know, cloud team doesn't want to provision resources for dev team, right? Um, dev team's going to ask for X different things but there's like a, a firewall that prevents them from being able to just like collaborate and do, do something different, you know? Yeah. And I can, I can see it being more like in, in traditional, you know, project management parlance, it's more like a matrix style organization. I mean, even if they're, they're separate, it's important that they're intermingled and, and maybe embedded. Like it's all about breaking down that wall between departments and shared ownership. Right. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal. And that's why it's kind of like, it seems difficult to say, well, there's that team because that, that, in, that inherently has some separation if you're not on that same team. 
But the question behind your question, Keely, is brilliant, which is security really has struggled, maybe even more than IT in general, to push left. And the reasons for that are myriad. One is we're used to using tools that are expensive, take a long time to run, and generally only get run periodically, like once a quarter, once a year, right? Like, or, or they take 10 days to run. So we're out of the dev cycle at this point, right? They've finished and deployed and we're ne- just now finishing the analysis of their code, which examples there are like static analysis tools classically cannot do things that fast. Also, until recently, most security folks weren't working in JIRA or you know, Asana or whatever the developers are using to manage their, their tasks. And so it made it very difficult to have visibility. And you ended up with this overly formalized process that was heavy on documentation where the dev team would have to go produce some you know, trove of documents to prove that they were doing security. And then the security team would review that trove of documents. And that process is not conducive to collaboration. It's not conducive to quick decisions. It's, you know, it it really goes against almost everything about pushing left. But unless you have a security team that understands agile and can get into some of the task-based systems and also is willing to talk about a specific issue and be helpful about one specific issue without boiling a whole other ocean around it, right? Making one little thing into a bigger thing. Um, you end up with issues. One of the things we've had the chance to do that's really fun is we'll build libraries that developers then use. So we facilitate security getting into the process by actually writing some of the core frameworks and code that people use. And that's a great way to push left because basically you're, you're Trojan horsing security into the libraries that people are using by default. Um, But I think from a, from a, industry perspective, a lot of people think pushing left is, and we'll get to the technical side of this in a minute, is just like running some tools. But we forget to mention that the security tools, you know, a lot of them are not API friendly. They're not easy to script and code against. They're not easy to integrate into CICD systems. Um, You know, they're used to, there's something where you pay $50,000 a seat to have an operator sit there and do something, you know? So that's really a, a big impotence mismatch with, the way DevOps is supposed to work and the way I think pushing left can work. In, in, in piggybacking on, onto that a little bit, man, I, I mean, would you say that, um, well, this is my opinion. We'll see if you agree. I mean, I think one of the, the biggest, biggest things about pushing left is about knowledge. It's about getting that, getting that knowledge into, into the hands of developers, training people so that they can be there and just like having those, like you said, those baseline requirements in place, allowing people to make the right decisions early and to, to be worried about the right things early. The tools are great, but I think that like increasing the level of knowledge for the developers is really where you have the, the big net gain there. I totally agree. I don't think that's the only thing pushing left is. No, no, absolutely not. But I, I think that's, I, to me, I think that's the biggest net gain from it. which I think is part of the reason why we're so passionate about training and trying to help developers do that more well, so. Wait, our DNA is all so closely tied to developers. Right. Like I don't want to put them in a position where they're in pain. I want to put them in a position where they're empowered. The information flows back and forth. We can help them in a code, you know, quick basis. 
and and it's not a you know it's not a big long engagement to figure out what their you know fifty thousand security issues are. <laughs> what I hear a lot is that security is expensive and we don't have the money. Do you think that? the pricing and the lack of resources and even the lack of people who know how to code securely, you think that it affects the, um, a lot of businesses not pushing left? Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know how to even like expand on that. Cause you framed it really well. Like the, you know, if, if you don't have people who are embracing agile and learning new things and understanding how security is part of their job, you can't, you can't push left. I mean, <laughs> and it costs time and money to do security and people haven't figured out that that's important. And I think part of the problem there is that some of that becomes, it, it requires a pretty good understanding of the risk you're taking on by not doing that. And a lot of people don't think about, Going back again, what you're talking about, the expense of catching a bug three months from now versus, you know, today before we release it. A lot of people don't think about that. Uh, I've worked with a lot of businesses who, who, who feel that way. And if you start having a conversation with them about, you know, how expensive security can be later if you're not doing it now, <laughs> you know, well, if, if you I'm really good at other things, you know, it can be a business ending, a business ending issue. A really good case study would be Zoom. And and before I say anything, I'm sure there are a lot of really smart people at Zoom and I'm sure the security people are really smart at Zoom, but their recent issue provides a really interesting case study, right? So this week, a vulnerability was disclosed where on Mac, Zoom installed a web server and used the web server locally to connect your webcam. And basically, it was really to make the user experience better on a Mac. But it, I mean, in opening a web server, there were several security issues, one of which is that a malicious site could get you to join your video into a, a Zoom that wasn't yours, um, which is, for a lot of people, maybe a bad scenario. I certainly don't want to be on a video with people I don't know, uh, potentially without even realizing it. Um, but stepping back, right, there's no, there's no reasonable situation, in my opinion, where running a local web server as part of a Zoom, part of a, part of a video conferencing package makes sense. And, and, and beyond that, the installation, so one of the things this web server could do is silently reinstall Zoom if you tried to join another link. So the link would redirect locally and then your local process in that web server would pull down a new version of Zoom and install it. Which, I mean, if I uninstalled Zoom and there's some web server I don't know about pulling down a new version, like that's just so against what I think is reasonable for a user to expect that it tells me that there's, there are lack of gates in the process at Zoom in terms of how their software is being developed. And so when you talk about pushing left, somebody should have said, hey, what's the design of this thing? Why is there a web server on this thing, right? There's a technical aspect to it. There's a user aspect to it. You know, what do the users expect? As a user, I do not expect you to silently reinstall a program on my computer that I uninstalled. I also don't expect you to uninstall a web server and not remove it when I delete your program, right? So there are a variety of really, really basic things that are so wrong that it tells me that their AppSec program is broken, right? And again, I'm not saying they're not smart people, but the evidence is out here for all of us to see, right? 
And what they could have done is they could have had processes in place where that code gets reviewed and somebody who's a security architect or, or, or an architect or somebody is saying, well, what's this component? What's, you know, how do these pieces fit together? Are we, are we supposed to be deploying this this way? You know, how do we clean up? Like these are questions we don't always ask as developers, right? It's not the scenario we want. We want you to install and always run our software. But if you remove it, what should it do? It should remove it, right? It seems pretty obvious. Um, and so I think there's a, a way that if you look at, at, at that as a case study, it's a perfect example of what Joe referred to as, you know, you need the people to be thinking about what they're doing because static analysis or no matter what we do in CI CD, which we should also talk about here, none of that, I'm sure Zoom is running a bunch of CI CD security stuff. They're not going to find that like running a web server is not something static analysis is going to find because it's going to assume you meant to, right? Exactly. So I don't know if I'm off the deep end there, but I'm like, unless you have people who are empowered and who are stakeholders who understand the technology, you can't fix that kind of issue proactively. And now, I mean, we're not paying for Zoom anymore. I'm sure a bunch of people are making that decision. A bunch of our clients are making that decision. Um, Right. And it's okay. The immediate issue is fixed, but the question is, do I believe that zoom has a program that's going to prevent these kinds of things from happening again? And based on their response to this issue, which was less than stellar and the, the detail, like the variety of details about the actual issue, I'm not convinced they have enough. They have the capacity or process to, to produce secure software fundamentally. Right. I'll get off my bit, my, my high horse here, but. No, I think that uh, perfectly goes into our next question is what are some of the technical things with security that you can vote, uh, that you can accomplish by pushing left? Well, Matt, Matt touched on one of them there and that's um, integrating some security checks and, and that type of thing into your continuous delivery and continuous integration processes. Um, depending on what language you're in, I mean, pretty much every language now has dependency scanners, which is one great thing that helps you catch maybe a, a dependency that has a vulnerability in it that maybe you didn't know about. So you can block an integration process or block a, a pull request from going through when that scans and kicks out, oh, hey, we've got a vulnerability we need to address. So maybe you need to do dependency updates. Um, some people use static analysis tools. They there are some things that static analysis tools are really great at finding. There's a lot more stuff that they can't really find at all. But uh, apologies there. <laughs> Pop the guy. Yeah. Sorry, I won't call you again while you're on the mic. That's okay. It's, it's robo calls, man. Robo calls. They're, they're killing me. I get like 10 a day. <clears throat> uh, so we can also do other things like, you know, scanning, <clears throat> <laughs> and look who's calling me out. You hung up before I could get my phone up to the camera. <laughs> <laughs> gotta have fun, man. You gotta have fun. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but also, I mean, you mentioned, um, <clears throat> you mentioned doing, you know, penetration testing, doing you know, network scanning if you're in deployed environments to make sure that everything is configured and, <clears throat> up to date the way you expect it to be. Um, there are other tools people can use for deployments. Like if, if you're doing containerized systems, you can make sure that your containers get rebuilt and that your upstream packages get updated. There are tools that can help you scan for that and identify it and 
make sure that you're not just relaunching your containers, but you're rebuilding those to make sure you're on the, the latest upstream packages to, to ensure that, you know, those are as secure as they can be. I'm sure Matt's got a few there. We could talk about this for an entire podcast. I think there's, there's so many, uh, so many things out there that you can do. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of, I feel like some people think pushing left means that you have your static analysis tied into Jenkins or whatever your CICD is. Right. And, and that's not wrong, <laughs> but it's certainly not complete. Right. So when we, so there are a couple things about how I would normally do this in practice with a customer that might be interesting here. Right. So number one, before I buy anything, I want to prove that a process can work around it. So for dependency tools, I'm going to use RetireJS or NPM audit. For Java or .NET, I'm going to use dependency check. For you know, Ruby, I'm going to use bundler audit, right? And, and, and I'm going to basically find the open tool that does the dependency check, and then I'm going to integrate that. And then once I can prove that I can deal with that and keep my libraries up to date and do the things it's going to force me to do, only then will I look for, well, do I really need a better dependency checker or is the one that I have okay? Then same thing for static analysis, right? There are open static analysis tools. Many of them, many of them stink. Like the open ones are generally not great. That's because static analysis is really hard. So if you invest a lot of money in it, you should get paid for it. So that's why people spend a lot of money for high-end static analysis tools. Um, and my experience with static analysis tools is that they are also very iffy. Some are, they're good in some languages. They're less good in others. They're good at finding certain things, really not good at finding a lot of others. They generally produce a lot of noise. I mean, I've seen a lot of companies where there's more than a few people fine tuning the rules in a static analysis engine, right? And that just feels like an interesting use of resources. Um, but that is something that you could do when you're pushing left on a technical perspective. Another simple thing is like, are we committing secrets? Like are we committing AWS keys to our source code? Um, use a git commit hook to do that, right? Um, to make sure that those things never go. Are we setting up our local workstations in a way with like AWS Vault so that we're not sharing secrets around in general? Are we um, writing unit tests? And if we are, are we writing security unit tests? And the greatest example of a security unit test is those authorization checks, right? I can prove that if I ask for Keeley's profile as Joe, I get rejected. That's how that should work. If that ever changes, I'd like to know that that regressed. Having a unit test is a great way to know that. And it's an easy test to write if you're a developer thinking about authorization and you're writing any unit tests at all. <laughs> um, you know, um, but there are other things as you get to the infrastructure level, right? So we have a whole tool that does cloud auditing, but you don't even need a tool. You can just say, hey, I'm expecting these VPCs to exist with these ports open. Like that's a, you know, 20 line Python script. That could be something you check every day, right? Um, I expect things to be configured a certain way. I want to know who my users are. I can, you know, we also wrote a tool that you can use to dump out your active users in, in AWS. Um, like, it's not that you need the tool because you could just run an IAM credential report, but the point is it's very easy to integrate because, all, because these tools have APIs now. And so part of pushing left to me is having like a developer and security expert in your team, working in CI/CD, building the pieces to, to automate the checks that you need to automate to make sure that software never goes wrong, right? Um, so that, I mean, it's a lot of the same things Joe said in just a slightly different spin. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, and I'm, and what I what I tell people, I've worked with a lot of people who don't have anything there, and so you know, we all I try to just recommend, hey, start with like Matt said, start with the things that are semi easy. You know, pretty much everyone's got a build server. Hey, throw a dependency auditor in there. You know, uh, you don't have any unit tests. Okay, start writing some. You know, pick a new feature that you're implementing and start that process and grow it. Yep, and I believe. I, I think part of part of what uh, some people I've worked with, they get overwhelmed by thinking about, and I, I hope people who are listening aren't getting overwhelmed by all the things we're throwing out there, but the idea is to just kind of, you know, pick things and bite things off. And, and as long as you're improving your security posture, that's, that's great. Yeah. There are other things, just to say one other thing, like you can also run dynamic analysis against your app very easily. So because in the cloud we can provision new resources and new systems so easily, I can spin up a version of our software, which we do for our own software that we build. We spin up the, the stack for a PR and we test that, right? And you can run like Burp's app, you can run any kind of dynamic analysis tool against that to make sure that it's not exposing anything new that you don't know about. And again, dynamic analysis is not that different from static where there's a lot of things you may not care about that come out of that and the, the yield may not be as high as you want, but it's a good thing to do. <laughs> Sorry, Keila, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just didn't want to leave that out. Oh, no, you're good. I was about to wrap up and ask our next question, because I believe we're pushing on time here. Um, so does pushing left, does it apply to companies that aren't building things? Ooh, that's a good question. I think it can. Go ahead, Joe. I, I, I'm, I think I'm stretching the original idea of pushing left, but, but I think it absolutely can in the sense that, um, and, and we've touched on this a couple of times, but I think there's some core takeaways. One is that shared responsibility. I think that's, that, that's, that's maybe not what we mean exactly by pushing left, but that is a result of pushing left, I think. And I think it's a lesson that all organizations could take away. Um, security is a responsibility of everyone in the organization. It's, it's, it's important to the business. And so building that shared responsibility and knowledge, educating people can really help build that. And I think that that's a huge benefit to any organization. Um, even if somebody's just answering the phone, if they're thinking about those things and someone calls up and asks them a weird question about a customer, or ask for information maybe they shouldn't give away. If they're minded around that, they think about those things. I mean, I, I've worked at places where we've had tech support people get phishing calls about some of our customers. Mm -hmm. And because we had, we had talked to them about, you know, about some of these things that happened, they're skeptical when people call and they know to double check things. So I think, yes, everyone can pull some lessons from it. Yeah, I would agree with Joe that I think it's stretching it just a little bit. I think pushing left really applies to the SDLC sort of compressed into a timeline, no matter how it works, and, and then moving to the earlier parts of the timeline. So, so to me, pushing left is sort of inherently tied to that SDLC timeline. But if you stop and think about, like I have a retail store, um, outside my window there's a Walgreens, right? Let's say I own a new Walgreens and I'm setting it up and I'm hiring a bunch of people and I'm stocking if I wait until three months in to go do look at my like loss prevention program and my 
you know, where my alarms are, where my cameras are, I will have already lost a whole lot, right? So the same time frame concept applies where if I, as we build the store, think about where the cameras go, you know, and there may be models for this. So I may be using a bad example where Walgreens knows how to build a store and they do the same every time. But, you know, if it's a mom and pop retail store, right, there isn't a, there isn't a game plan for how the store gets laid out based on security, right? Um, and you may not put in the metal detector initially. You may not tag the super valuable items initially. There's all kinds of things, choices you make and trade-offs you make. And um, the idea with pushing left is to embrace those early and I think iterate quickly on what you do, right? That's sort of an implied thing about pushing left that we didn't really say. Well, Joe sort of alluded to it where it seems like this big set of things, but the truth about pushing left, one of the reasons why it's effective in the cases that it works is that you can take the pieces that work well and leave the pieces that don't. And you can try things that are more manageable and then build on those. And you can invest a small amount of money on one piece that works instead of the whole program all at once. Um, so I think that's a really good observation. Yep. Well, I think we're running out of time here. I wanted to add that I believe somewhere in our documents, we have a SDLC timeline that includes pushing left with security. Uh, so I, we can also include that in the notes down here for anybody who is interested. Great. You guys have any last words? Yeah. I will say just in, you know, so we sort of thought about like, well, what do we do? What do we really do to push left ourselves? because we do have several software products that we build. And the question is, you know, how does that work? Because not only do we do code review for all our PRs, we obviously have been trained. We do, um, we build in AWS architectures that are inherently encrypted and segmented. And uh, we run tools to make sure that the configurations are proper. Um, so we're using proper encryption for data at rest. We're using, you know what I'm saying? So we're doing a lot of the things that we need to do. I think when we write stories, there's sort of an implicit people understand security. So it gets thought through. But I think, I mean, I'm just saying this very bluntly. I think that's dangerous that we could fall into a trap where we assume we know it. We know the risk related to a certain story. And we um, maybe accept a certain amount of technical debt that turns into a risk that we don't necessarily identify or quantify soon enough. And so, you know, being really super direct and honest, like I think we need to really be, I think we're doing a good job. Like I've, we've seen so many bad things, like we're doing a really good baseline job, right? But we could do better. And I think, I think no matter how good you're doing, you should always look for improvement. And I think that's another good takeaway from everything we've kind of talked about is um, don't, don't just implement that one thing and then stop looking for how you can, how you can be better. Always, always be on the lookout for ways you could do better and how you can enhance what you're doing. And that doesn't apply just to security that, that applies everywhere. Again, I think that's a shared responsibility by everyone who's involved. And one, one core part of just trying to be agile and be stay current and, you know, compete. It's something we all have to do. Yeah. Well, I think that's a wrap for this episode. Hey, where's Matt Conda? Was he here? No, I, I don't know. I didn't see him. I didn't either. <laughs>